The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 15th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. You've heard it said that you should not put all of your eggs in one basket. And everybody acknowledges that there's a lot of wisdom there. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you have a literal basket of eggs and that basket were to break or you were to drop that basket, there go all of your eggs. Ruined. You're left with nothing. And so, the advice is to have a backup plan. Always a plan B. And probably, if you're especially prudent, a backup to the backup plan. Make sure that you keep your options open. Whatever it is that you're doing in life, make sure that if things fail, as you plan for them, you've always got somewhere else to turn. You have another option. You have another door that you could open. Always be prepared. This is how we live our lives. We live our lives really as people who enjoy having lots of options. So if you are going to go to McDonald's and you're going to order a burger and they mess up your order or you're just dissatisfied with what they give to you, you can always go to Dairy Queen. There's always another option, another place you can go. We live our lives as consumers with backups to the backup to the backup plan, always ready, never putting all of our eggs in one basket. There are, of course, times, however, when you really get down to the last basket. And those are moments that we feel very desperate, where we feel like we have nowhere else to turn. Like you're stranded in the middle of Montana, you're driving on fumes down the interstate, and there's one gas station right ahead there, the next gas station is 300 miles down the way, and you hope, you just hope desperately that that gas station is open and that they've got gas and that you have enough money to fill your tank to get you to the next exit. That's pretty desperate, a terrible feeling to be down to your last option, to have all of your eggs in one basket and not knowing, not knowing whether it's going to pay off. Those are times when you're forced, really. But there are other times in life when it is good, when it is good to put all of your eggs in one basket. Although... I will say the world disagrees about this. As far as the world is concerned, you should always keep your options open. But here's an example. Marriage. Marriage is one time where you should put all your eggs in one basket. You should not. Keep your options open. In fact, that's one of the great things about marriage is that it forecloses all other options. So now you're not busy spending your time and your attention trying to make a decision. Instead, you can focus on loving the one that is in front of you. Marriage goes bad if you keep your options open, if you are divided in your love and affection. If you don't put all of your eggs in one basket, then you can't 
work at your marriage. You can't sacrifice. You can't love with your whole heart. You're always thinking, well, there's a way out of this. And that is what is the ruin of so many marriages, thinking that there's a way out, that there's another option. It's good. It's good to put all of your eggs in one basket when it comes to marriage, in spite of what the world says. But that's not how we live our lives. We usually try to keep our options open. Today, Jesus contradicts the world. He says exactly the opposite. He says, don't worry about having a backup plan. He says, put all of your eggs in one basket. That's what he's teaching the Canaanite woman in our lesson this morning. Jesus handles her roughly, which is very instructive for us. If you have thought in your life that Jesus is supposed to be sort of kind and cuddly and always gentle with you, you've been deadly wrong. He handles us roughly as he handles this woman today. First, he is silent as she approaches him in her desperate need. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Crickets. He won't even reply to her. And then as she persists and his disciples say, would you just deal with her? Would you send her away? Just solve her problem so we don't have her hounding us anymore. Jesus doesn't even address her, but he says, look, I've not been sent to anyone but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's not an Israelite. What business do I have with her? He won't even talk to her. He's just talking about her. And yet, she insists. She draws nearer. She falls down before him and pleads. And he says, you're just a dog. Why should I give you the food that is prepared for the children? He handles her roughly. It's so important for you to know that Jesus handles his children roughly. He does it because he knows that we need it. He puts us to the test. He puts our faith to the test because he knows that faith which is untested will wither. Faith that is never strengthened, faith that is never tempered, will wither and fade. Metal that has not been put through the crucible, that hasn't been hammered and gotten rid of all the impurities, that metal will not stand under the strain. And so it must be hammered and heated red hot and tempered and forged. That's what God does to us. That's what Jesus does for us. He does that because he is not interested in being just one option that we have among many, which is how so many people think about Jesus. Look, he's a good option. He offers lots of good things, but I better have a backup plan. I better have a backup to the backup plan. Or maybe Jesus is the backup plan. When things get really rough, Maybe then I'll turn to Jesus. Maybe when I have some more time, or maybe when I'm in desperate need, that's when I'll turn to Jesus. No, that's not how Jesus wants to be for us. He wants to be the only option. He wants to be the only one to whom we look for good things. It's not that Jesus couldn't heal the woman's daughter apart from her faith. He could have done it. He could have said the word and the demon could have been gone. But Jesus knew that if he did that, and she didn't believe in him, if she didn't trust in him, if she didn't have him alone as her God, then that healing wouldn't do her any good. And in fact, it might actually hurt her to receive what she wants as though she had made the right bet. She'd put money on the right number, and it paid off. That's not what Jesus wants. He wants her, he wants you, to trust in him alone, above all things above everything else, even the things in this life that seem most trustworthy, the things that you feel like you should be able to count on, he wants you to trust in him above all else. 
because he is jealous for your love. Not in the way that some infatuated teenage girlfriend is jealous of her boyfriend. Not in that way. But jealous for your love as a husband is for his wife and a wife is for her husband. Jealous, knowing that the only way this works, the only way this works, is if you are putting all your eggs in one basket, if your trust and love are for one alone. That's the way it has to be with Jesus because it is from him and him alone that every good thing comes to us. It's so easy for us to think in this life that we have found our own way, that we have acquired for ourselves good things, that we are the ones who put food on our tables and roofs over our heads and clothing on our bodies, that we are the ones who have found a good job, made money, made a way for our children, that we are the ones who have guaranteed success in life. Far from it. It all comes to us from God. What have you that you do not have received as a gift? What do you have that didn't come from God? This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. We ask God for everything. Not just for the forgiveness of sins, not just for deliverance from evil, but even for our daily bread, down to the last drop of water that you drink. Everything comes from God. If we think of it in any other way, if we look to anyone else for those good things, then we are not trusting in God, and we will not receive from Him all of the blessings that He has in store for us. If we think of Him as just one option among many, if we think about him as just one option among many, then we cannot receive from him. He provides for all our needs. He is our all in all. He is the one who has promised to fill us up with every good thing. Of course he is jealous. Of course he is exclusive. Of course he puts us to the test to ensure that we trust in him alone because he knows that without him, without that relationship, we will die. We are done for. We will end up in hell far from him. And so, and so, he puts us to the test. He tempers us and strengthens us and teaches us to trust in him. That's what he did for this Canaanite woman. And look, look at the reward that she received. Great is your faith. Great is your faith, he said to her. Because when even Jesus himself pushed her back, when he himself, with his behavior, seemed to contradict all of the things that she knew about him, his promises and his love for her and the blessings that he said he would give to her, even when he seems to contradict that, she insisted because she believed. She knew her need. She knew that no one could save her, that no one could help her daughter except Jesus alone. And so if Jesus wouldn't do it, she has no business going anywhere else. If Jesus won't do it, then she is without hope altogether. She knew that. But even more, she knew that he could and he would help her. And so she did not let up. And so she let nothing get in the way. Not even Jesus himself. She didn't let him get in the way between her and God's promises. And see how she was rewarded. Great is your faith. Your daughter has been made well. Jesus marvels. He marvels at a wondrous thing it is. He thanks God that she trusts in him. This is what Jesus does for us. There is a way in which you can think about your whole life long as a series of tests of Jesus tempering your faith. That's how you should think about suffering. Paul puts it that way. He says, rejoice in your suffering because you know that this is your heavenly Father putting you to the test, seeing whether you will trust in him, teaching you that trust in him is your only hope. 
Suffering, after all, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope, unlike the hope you might put in anything in the world, this hope will never be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. In the end, on the last day, you will stand. And every time that you trusted in God against all odds, against everything the world told you, against everything your friends and your family said to you, against everything your flesh desired, you will stand on the last day and you will see that God has been faithful all along. That hope is not put to shame, but we cannot do it on our own. We cannot muster up that kind of faith on our own. Left to our own devices, we would abandon God as quickly as possible. We'd say, the things I see with my eyes, the things I perceive around me, those are true and reliable and trustworthy. The things I can do with my own hands, that's what I have to rely on. We cannot trust in God on our own, and so he teaches us to trust in him. Just as he taught the Canaanite woman, he teaches us by putting us to the test and proving that he is reliable. In some sense, this is what happens every Sunday you show up in church. There's a kind of a test of your faith in coming to church. Think about what's entailed in being here, in sitting among these people, in a group of sinners, in this place when you could be doing anything else, any kinds of other things that might be more rewarding immediately, instant gratification. Here you are, putting your trust in God, receiving gifts from God at this altar under the simple elements of bread and wine, taking that for the forgiveness of your sins, having all of your guilt covered, listening to the words of a sinful man standing in a pulpit who's no different from you, made from the same stuff as you. Here you are being put to the test, kind of like Naaman was put to the test. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army who had a leprosy, and he went and visited the prophet, and the prophet said to him, go wash in the Jordan River. And Naaman said, that's too little for me. That's too lowly. That's just a muddy little creek. I've got better rivers back home. I've got better things I could be doing. I don't need that. That's not where I need to find my salvation. I've got better ways to spend my time. And yet, when his servants prevailed upon him, he trusted and believed, and he received cleansing and healing, and he was made whole, and he praised God. He praised God that God had worked for him in such a wondrous way, that God had put him to the test. And that God had proven reliable. That's what you experience when you come here. But I've thought about this a little bit. I've wondered often to myself, what would happen to me? What would I do if I showed up in church one Sunday and someone at the door said the kinds of things that Jesus said to this Canaanite woman? What would you do if someone stopped you at the door one Sunday morning and said to you, Jesus said, we should not cast our pearls before swine. What would you do? If someone stopped you from coming into church and said, look, what are you doing here? What business do you have in this place? How would you react? Would you just turn and walk away and say, I've got better things to do. I don't need to be there. This is, not, this is a waste of my time dealing with this. Would you get angry? Would you storm away and say, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. This is not who I am. I'm better than this. Who's that person to talk to me in this way? Or would you storm in? Would you shove your way into the door and say, I deserve this. This is my right. I'm a member of this congregation after all. I belong here. This is my place. This is my church. How would you react? Would it be a claim to rights? Would it be anger? Would it be vengeance? Would it be, would it be just plain you don't care? Apathy? What would it be? Or, I think we would all be tested by this. I know I would be. Or would you be like that poor Canaanite woman? I'm not going to do this to you, by the way. I'm not going to stop you at the door and say this. But what would you do? Would you, like that poor Canaanite woman, say, 
This is my only hope. If you send me away, I've got nothing left. If you tell me to leave, where am I going to go? Where else can I receive the forgiveness of sins except in the body and blood of Jesus? Where else can I go for life and salvation? This is my only hope. Is that what you would say? In some sense, what Jesus is aiming for, for us in our whole lives long, is to make it so that we would walk through fire to receive his gifts, to hear his word, to be blessed by him, that we would put up with no obstacle, that we would let nothing deter us from drawing near to him and receiving his gifts. Not discomfort or disease, not sickness or danger, not the threat of death, not your pride or your sinful desires, not work or play or family or any of the treasures of the world, that we would not let any of those things get in the way between us and our Savior because we know that he is our only hope, that apart from him we have no life and no future and no joy, that all of the promises of this world that all of the hope we might put into them, they will, they will put us to shame. They will leave us wanting. But he will never do that. That's what Jesus is teaching us our whole lives long. That's the goal. That should be the goal for every Christian. We can't do it on our own. Our flesh is weak. But we should pray that we would, in the end, be willing to walk through fire to receive God's gifts. That we would learn, in the end, to put all of our eggs in one basket. Not to have a backup plan. Not to think of any other option as worthwhile. But to trust in Jesus alone and to receive from him every good thing. This is what he's teaching you, and here's how he does it. Pay attention to this. He shows you, first of all, your need. That poor Canaanite woman, she knew what she needed. Her daughter was demon-oppressed. She knew what she needed, and she knew that nothing else mattered. And she knew that it was, the cause of, it was because of sin, that it was because of the brokenness of this world, because it, of, it was because of her own sin, her own sinful nature, that she was suffering any kind of need that's what you learn day in and day out. When you suffer, when you suffer, pay attention and know that it is because of sin. Not because of this or that sin necessarily, although sometimes that's the case. But it's simply because you're a sinner. Because you live in a sinful world. Know that there is only one cure for that problem. And it's Jesus himself. Pay attention to the fact that the cost of paying for your sins was so great that it meant Jesus himself, the Son of God, dying on the cross for you. That's what the season of Lent is all about. It's building up to this moment where we see God in all his glory doing for us what no one else could do, no one else would do, because the task was too great for anyone else. But Christ did it. He died for you. That's how he teaches you to put all your eggs in one basket. He shows you your need. He shows you your sin. He shows you your frailty and your weakness. He makes you miserable. He handles you roughly. He gives you suffering. Why? So that he can deliver you from sin and death and everlasting condemnation. So that he can teach you to trust in him alone. It's an incredible story. This is one of my favorite Sundays in the church year because it is shocking. It's staggering to see Jesus behave in this way. But when you understand what you're made of, and what he's willing to do for you, this is one of the most hopeful stories. After all, Jesus could have just healed her daughter and sent her away. But he wanted more for her. He wanted better for her. He wanted her to trust in him so that she could receive from him every good thing. That's what he wants for you. So come and be fed and filled by Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.